a sermon. Um, it was written and read by a Puritan named John Winthrop. He was also the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he wrote, this was the, the name of this speech or sermon, a model of Christian charity. And he wrote this as this group of pilgrims that he was leading sailed from England to the New World on the ship Arabella in the year 1630. Winthrop was trying to prepare his people for the challenges of establishing a, a new community in a, in a strange and foreign land, a new community that would allow them the religious freedom that they lacked in Europe. This sermon, with its famous reference to uh, a city on a hill, had a profound effect on the way that historians understood the Puritan mission in the founding of that Massachusetts Bay Colony. The speech has been quoted by multiple presidents over the years, most famously by John F. Kennedy in 1961, and then Ronald Reagan in 1988. And usually when a president quote this, they do so in order to promote the idea of a national unity and global leadership and, and even in in some cases, the notion that the United States is on a mission sanctioned by, sanctioned by divine providence. It stands out as a political speech, and it stands out because it has a message of love, respect, and togetherness. Winthrop proclaims that they will either succeed or fail together. I want to read just a little bit of the beginning of this. Is one of the founding documents of what would become our nation. He says this, God Almighty, in His most holy and wise providence, hath so disposed of the condition of mankind, as in all times some must be rich, some poor, some high and eminent in power and dignity, others mean and in submission. The reason hereof, he says. First reason. He says, first, to hold conformity with the rest of his, of his world, being delighted to show forth the glory of his kingdom in the variety and difference of the creatures and the glory of his power in ordering all these differences for the preservation and good of the whole and the glory of his greatness, that as it is the glory of princes to have many officers so this great king will have many stewards, counting himself more honored in dispensing his gifts to man by man than if he did it by his own immediate hands. He gives a second reason. He says, secondly, that he might uh, have the more occasion to manifest the work of his spirit, first among the wicked in moderating and restraining them, so that the rich and mighty should not eat up the poor nor the poor and despised rise up and, uh, against and shake off their yoke. Secondly, in the regenerate, in exercising His graces in them, as in the great ones, their love, mercy, gentleness, temperance, etc., and in the poor and inferior sort, their faith, patience, obedience. Third reason, and this is the one I want you to really hear this morning for today's sermon, the third reason that God has made some rich and some poor, some high and eminent and, and some low and in submission, he says this, Thirdly, that every man might have need of others, and from hence 
They might be all knit more nearly together in the bonds of brotherly affection. From hence it appears plainly that no man is made more honorable than another or more wealthy, etc., uh, et out of any particular and singular respect to himself, but for the glory of his Creator and the common good of the creature, man. A little bit later he says, there are two rules we are to walk towards one another, justice and mercy. And then near the middle of this speech, he gives this amazing paragraph. He says this, The definition which the Scripture gives of love is this. Love is the bond of perfection. First, it is a bond or a ligament. Secondly, it makes the work perfect. There's no body but consists of parts that, um, and that which knits these parts together gives the body its perfection because it makes each part so contiguous with others as thereby they do mutually participate with each other both in strength and infirmity, in pleasure and pain. To instance in the most perfect of all bodies, Christ and His church make one body. The several parts of this body, considered apart before they were united, were as disproportionate and as much disordering as so many contrary qualities or elements. But when Christ comes and by His Spirit and love knits all these parts to Himself and to each other, it has become the most perfect and best proportioned body in the world. Christ, by whom all the body being knit together by every joint for the furniture thereof, according to the effectual power which is in the measure of every perfection of parts, a glorious body without spot or wrinkle, the ligaments hereof being Christ or His love. For Christ is love. So the definition is right, he says. Love is the bond of perfection. So this idea of a people knit together in love, that idea is completely foreign to our world today, especially in the context here of, of nation building, right? But for churches, for churches it is a non-negotiable. In his letter to the Colossians, um, the Apostle Paul wrote this. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the fullness of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul, Paul desired that the Colossians and the Laodiceans who had not met him personally. He desired that they would be knit together in love. Knit together, as Winthrop said, in the bonds of brotherly affection. Again, this is a, this is a non-negotiable for churches. Um, that we would be knit together in love. In fact, Jesus once said to his disciples in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. 
See, not only are Christians commanded to love one another, that love for other believers is to be the evidence of our faith in Christ. In fact, the image that that Winthrop painted in that sermon, he pictures the ligaments holding together the parts of the body of Christ. Those ligaments are Christ's love. So our common bond as Christians and members of Redemption Bible Church is love. Not love how the world defines love, which is ever-changing. It's completely confusing. In fact, there are millions, I would say, of worldly definitions of love out there. Um, I took a chance and I googled definition of love. And one random website, lifehack.org, an article entitled, The Top Six Definitions of Love That Everyone Should Know. Ready? Love is never rushing into relationships. Love is not being jealous. Love is giving yourself a chance. Love is to stop expecting. Love is maintaining privacy. Love is avoiding misunderstandings. None of those statements are definitions of love. They might be characteristics of something, but I would argue that they're not characteristics of love. And in fact, I think with very little effort, probably most of us in here could refute every single one of them with the Scriptures. But that kind of confusion is the nature of the world's brand of love, right? Yet as a Christian church, we are bound together by love. So what do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say that our common bond, the ligaments that hold us together, is love? Well, let's read the final few verses of 1 Corinthians as we bring um, our study of this letter to a close this morning. And we're going to see this answer unfold here in the pages of Scripture. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16 I'm going to read verses 19 through 24 as we finish this letter. 1 Corinthians 16, 19 says this, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. All right, let's stop and pray here. Father, what we don't know, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Help us to understand what you would would have for us in your word today, Lord. pray that Christ would increase in our hearts in love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, just for the curious among us, um, this is the 50th sermon that I preached in 1 Corinthians. Um, We started our study the first week of May in 2021. That year we spent the first four months um, in Titus. We took a few detours along the way over these last, I guess, couple of years now. Um, it's taken longer than I expected, but here we are now at the end of the road in this particular study. 
So our plan is, um, just so that you know this, over the next few weeks, some of the other men will be preaching for the Advent season as we come into Christmas. I'm going to preach again on Christmas Sunday. And then in the new year, I plan to start a new study in the, in the book of Leviticus. Um, this summer when I was in New Hampshire, Chris and I had gone up there for, uh, in West Natalie too, for uh, kind of a long weekend. And I preached at our home church, and I mentioned that I was seriously considering preaching through Leviticus next, and several people came up to me and encouraged me to do that, said that they had studied it and um, that it would just be worthwhile to you. They were encouraging it for you. Um, I mentioned it in Sunday school a while back, too, and the same thing happened here. I'm, I'm encouraged, and I'm looking forward to a study that I think is going to be difficult, but I think it'll be good. So I'm looking forward to what the Lord has for us next. But let's keep going on uh, here in 1 Corinthians as we finish this up. This letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth is a case study of what it means to be a part of a gospel-shaped community of God's grace. Now, we could argue that all of the New Testament epistles are that, but 1 Corinthians in particular forces us to, 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 to understand God's grace toward us and then wrestle with how we display that grace toward others. And so if we've worked through these chapters, we've, we've considered many challenging and, and sometimes controversial topics and questions and themes and, and issues. We've seen that the good news of Jesus Christ has the power to change our churches, the power to change our families, the power to change us in personal and practical and in powerful ways, the power to change our lives. And now in these final verses, Paul, he's kind of in his normal conclusion mode. Um, over the past few weeks as we've looked through this chapter, we, we heard him lay out his travel plans um, as well as those rapid-fire commands that we saw last week, especially delivered to the men, act like men, right? Well, here now he sends some final greetings, both from himself and from other believers. And as we read these final greetings, we should be reminded of the importance of the ordinary. Ordinary people in ordinary churches, of ordinary genres of literature, and even, dare we say, ordinary letters that God uses as Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture to build up His church throughout the ages. But these people, the Corinthians, even with their differences, even with the factions that they had developed within the church, even with all of their troubles, they share a common bond, the love of God. In fact, in these final verses, we can see their genuine affection for one another in these greetings. We're going to see the, the problem of a lack of love. We'll talk about that in a moment. As well as the expressions of love from the Lord. In fact, we're going to see as we unfold this, expressions really of the two greatest commandments. Love of God and love of neighbor. I mentioned in passing that this was, this was an ordinary literary genre. What I mean by that is it was common in the, in the letters of the day to include this kind of greeting at the end of the letter. In fact, Paul does it in most of his letters. Um, 
This is a distinct literary tool, and it's, it's intended to establish a, a bond of friendship between the writer of the letter and the recipient. So Paul is writing these things purposefully. And remember, this is a church that is full of division. Even in his closing remarks, Paul is seeking to, to unify these saints. So let's look at these final greetings. The final greetings. Let me read verses 19 and 21 again. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So as I said, at first glance, when we first look at this, these seem to be just simple statements of something like, oh, the church says hello, by the way. But this is deeper than that. These, these greetings, these salutations, they display or they reveal a common bond that we take for granted today. Last year when I was on um, sabbatical, Chris and I went and visited six other churches. And one of the reasons we did so was to work at strengthening this bond between us and them, these other churches in most cases, or a couple of cases, I reached out to the pastors ahead of time just to let them know that I would be there. And in one place, they asked me to bring a greeting from this church. It's not a criticism of the others. It's actually not really that common of a practice anymore, especially if you're not preaching. I was just visiting that day. I remember thinking it was a little bit strange. You want me to, you want me to say something? I'm just, I just wanted to let you know that I was going to be there. But after studying through this, I think, it's actually, I think it's actually a very important ministry, connecting the churches. As Christians, we are not alone. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes it's, it's easy to forget that we're not alone, that there are other believers out there. Well, this section of greetings, it can be divided into four parts. There are four greetings here. Paul begins with some general greetings from, he says, the churches of Asia. Now look up at verses 8 and 9 real quick. Same chapter, verses 8 and 9, he had said this. He said, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul's writing this letter from the city of Ephesus, which is the, the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. So when we think of Asia... We think of the continent, right? China and India and, and so forth. But Asia here is, is the land, the area that covers what is, what is now western Turkey. Um, Galatia is actually just to the east of this. And we actually, we actually know some of the, at least some of the churches of Asia that Paul is referring to here. The Apostle John writes in Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he gives us a list he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you can read specific letters to each of those seven churches of Asia. So we know the churches that send their greetings. In fact, we know from Revelation 2 and 3 that those churches were not perfect. In fact, they had a lot of problems that the Lord 
Lord actually was correcting and rebuking them. We know, uh, we also have Paul's, door, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and he has talked about a, a wide door of effective ministry that was opened to him there. So we know that the word is going forth in this area. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, Paul tells us that he preached the word so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul is working hard here to link together in Christ all of these churches that all have their own individual problems and struggles, and he's reminding them of their common bond, Christ and his love. And so he and the other apostles, as well as other uh, Christian travelers, they would carry news back and forth. They would carry greetings to the churches back and forth as they, as they prayed for one another, as they all learned to stand firm in the faith together in a, in a pagan society in which many of them faced varying degrees of, of persecution and, and opposition. And the Lord used this, this mutual affection, their common bond, to spread His word. And so one of the reasons that we as a church joined um, Fire Fellowship, the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals, why we're committed to our Tim group, which is teammates in ministry. Um, this is why lately, almost every week, it's not in there this week, but almost every week in your bulletin, we have an insert of prayer request from Fire churches. This is why one day we hope to, we hope to host a, a Midwest fellowship where all the, all the churches would gather here so that we would be knit together with the saints in the common bond of the love of Christ, so that we would know we could put faces to words, to names of churches, to pastors that we pray for, so that we would know one another because we are, we are bound together in Christ. Well, secondly, not only does Paul send greetings from the churches, he also sends them hearty greetings from uh, Aquila and Priscilla and the specific church that meets in their home. And by the way, um, Prisca was probably what her friends called her. Sort of like if your name is Stephen and all your friends call you Steve or James and Jim or something like that. It's probably what her friends called her. He does this a couple of times in the letters. Now, this godly couple, they were originally from Rome, but they had been expelled and they met Paul in Corinth. And they were tent makers by trade. And Paul had also taken up the same trade to support himself. Turn over to Acts chapter 18. I want you to read a little bit about this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Acts chapter 18. Let me just read the first four verses and then we're going to jump down and read verse 24. Uh, to 28. So Acts 18, 1 to 4 says this. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now jump down to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So what I want you to see there is that that Priscilla and Aquila were a godly, mature couple. They were mature believers who had ministered alongside Paul. They had discipled Apollos. They would have been well known by the church in Corinth. At some point, later in chapter 18 there, they all end up in um, Ephesus. Paul will join them a little bit later. And a church met in their home in that city. Later we're going to find them back in Rome, and we know this because Paul will send another letter to the Romans. Romans. And at the end of that letter, he has a similar set of greetings, and we read this in Romans 16. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. This was a, here's the point. This was a faithful, godly couple who worked together to to plant churches, to host churches in their home, to build up the saints. Paul's mention of them here links together the Ephesians and the Corinthians even in a way that Paul can't. It's hard to say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos when you have worked faithfully alongside both of them. Faithful saints. Faithful saints are the lifeblood of the church. Those who make meals for new moms. There's about, there's about 10 that regularly sign up to make meals for people who need meals. Those who serve in the, in the nursery and Sunday school teachers are the lifeblood of the church. Those who see that the building is comfortable and warm, those who faithfully care for the finances, see that broken down cars get fixed, and, and above all, I would say this, Those who pray. Faithful saints who pray for one another are the lifeblood of the church. Charles Spurgeon wrote really to his own church in his autobiography. He he says just this simple sentence. He says, let me know the day when you give up praying for me, for then I must give up preaching. We don't know much about Priscilla and Aquila, but we know that they were faithful. In fact, even in Paul's final letter, written near the very end of his life, 2 Timothy, after he laments a list of people who have abandoned him, who have left him. Some have left because they were in love with this present world. Some are doing ministry off in other places. He's essentially alone, and yet Paul sends greetings to this couple again. I cannot stress enough how important faithful saints like Priscilla and Aquila are 
to the church, to any church. But he continues with greetings here. In fact, he sends his greetings from all the brothers. Probably either the, all of the saints who have had some sort of contact with the Corinthians, or more likely, I believe, these are the Ephesian elders, along with some of the other um, of Paul's various assistants that he has with him. Paul was constantly training up young men in the ministry, like Timothy, that he would then send to, to minister in various churches and other places. But again, this is about their common bond in Christ. Look again at verse 20. He says, All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The holy kiss. He also mentions this at the end of 2 Corinthians and the end of 1 Thessalonians. Peter, Peter mentions it also. He actually calls it the kiss of love in 1 Peter 5.14. So what's the deal with this? Well, throughout Scripture, um, a kiss is given to close relations often at times of reconciliation. So, for example, I'm just going to read you one example. When Joseph was reunited with his brothers after they had sold him into slavery and um, told his father that he was dead and, and he ends up in charge of the nation of Egypt, Genesis chapter 45, verses 9 to 15 says this. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. He has told them who he is. They recognize him. They haven't seen him in years. And he says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This reconciliation... They had sold him into slavery. They had told their dad that he was dead, that a wild animal had eaten him. And he forgives them. And they cry together. And they kiss. Most of the time when we see something like this, it's actually, most of the time it's actually in the book of Genesis. Though not always. We see it once uh, among a couple of friends who we could say are closer than brothers. David and Jonathan. A couple of times in the Old Testament, a kiss is given as a sign of honor. And by the way, this is why Judas's kiss was such a betrayal. Because in that Middle Eastern culture and time, this was an expression of genuine affection and unity. And as Christians, these people have been reconciled to Christ and therefore to one another. And so that kiss by Judas was such a betrayal. So the question is, is this merely cultural? 
We have to say not really because it transcends the, the millennia of the Bible from Genesis all the way into the late New Testament. But I would also say that yes, it is cultural because in our hyper-sexualized culture, virtually any type of kiss is seen as anything but a, gen, a gesture of respect and affection, right? Nevertheless, that's what Paul means here. Respect and affection. So you can take that for what it is. If you're me, you probably stick with a handshake. Maybe a hug. But then finally here, Paul, Paul greets them with his own handwriting. Again, this is common for the end of Paul's letters. In fact, in Galatians, he indicates that he suffers from some sort of eye trouble. And so it is likely that he, he dictated most of his letters. But as a sign of genuine affection, he picks up the pen and he greets them with his own hand. But even as he closes, even as he finishes up these final goodbyes, he gives them one more warning. One more warning. Verse 22. He says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. This seems to come from out of nowhere. Um, in the midst of these warm and affectionate greetings, he suddenly gives them this, this pretty stern warning. But remember, this closing is about the Christian's common bond, which is best summarized in this word that is finally used right here, love. See, this is a characteristic of all Christians, love. The Apostle John says it explicitly in, in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Down in verse 19, John continues, he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. These things... I hope that you're catching this. These things are just simply summaries of God's law. What did Jesus say was the most important of all of God's laws? Mark chapter 12, we read it like this. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. But remember, that's the law, not the gospel. That's the law, not the gospel. The gospel 
is that the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to die for our sins. What is the gospel? It's right there in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Gospel is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so as Christians... As Christians, we are now free to use the law in order to guide us in how we ought to then live in light of the gospel because of what God has done for us. See, the person who claims claims to know Christ, claims Christ, yet refuses to love God, by definition, that person cannot be a Christian because being a Christian, by definition, involves obeying his commands. Jesus said, after all, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the heart of being in a covenant relationship with God, really, whether we're talking about the old or the new covenant, the heart of that is love. Disobedience under God's old covenant law led only to curse, whereas obedience brought promises of blessing, but it is only Christ's obedience that saves us. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice that He says, Our Lord, come. Our Lord, come. That's the word Maranatha. It is at Christ's return that the final standing or falling of all of those who claim to belong to His covenant community, claim to be his, is going to be revealed. And so think of it like this. When we come to the table, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming to one another that because of Christ's work, because of God's faithfulness, we are still his covenant people. Because he is our God and we are his people because of what he has done, not what we have done. One of the earliest instruction manuals of the church is called the Didache. It's from the late first century AD. It was written shortly after uh, the book of Revelation. And in the Didache, we read this instruction regarding the Lord's Supper. It says, let grace come, let this world pass away. Hosanna to the son of David. If anyone is holy, let him come to the Lord's Supper. If anyone is not, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. Notice here in verse 22, that's in the context of if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Come quickly, Lord. Come quickly, Lord. 
Finally, in these last two verses, we read of goodwill toward men. Goodwill toward men. Let let me read this again, 23 and 4. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you in Christ Jesus. Amen. In the end, it it is only grace that will bring these Christians to mature faith. The same grace that saves us is what we need every single day to grow into Christ-like maturity, to grow in our love for one another. Progress in the Christian life requires the ongoing, faithful, merciful love of Christ and the Father. And so Paul leaves them ultimately in his hands. That's what he's doing here. Let the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Ultimately, you are in the Lord's hands. This people, this this church that is so deeply loved by Paul and tells them so there again, while also reminding them that they're in a covenant relationship with the one who loved them to the point of death, even death on a cross. He loves this church. He's reminding them that they are in God's grace. They're in His hands. And it is Christ that we imitate as we seek, as we seek each and every day, every week when we come together, as we seek to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and as we love one another, as we love our neighbors as ourselves. We're not doing that to earn our salvation because that's impossible. When I get up and pray a pastoral prayer, I will often say, Lord, we, we didn't do that this week. Now, I'm making big assumptions for you and me, but we didn't do that this week, did we? We didn't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we didn't love our neighbor as ourselves. But take heart, because Christ did and does. Take heart, because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And to those to whom he has granted everlasting life, what does he say? There is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even though we did not fully keep his law this week, even though we did not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, even even if it was just a little we didn't do that, we did it most of the time but not all the time, even though we didn't, if you belong to Christ, there is no condemnation because he's done it for you. And his righteousness is granted to you. And our common bond, what we have together, the the tendons, the sinews that hold us together is the love of Christ. And so we say, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Come quickly. Pray with me. Father, as we 
consider, as we've considered over the last couple of years, all of the words of this book, the corrections, the encouragement, as we have seen that statement and been reminded, and such were some of you, Lord, we are reminded today that we have been washed, that for all of those here who have trusted in Christ for salvation, we have been set apart, sanctified, made clean by the blood of Christ, that we have been granted repentance and faith and salvation that only can come from Christ. So Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we come to remember, we come to proclaim We come as a people who have been made holy by Christ to proclaim his death until he returns. Lord, we come as a people who are thankful. Thankful for the salvation that you have so richly poured out on us today. Change our hearts, Lord. And in the end, we know that the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with us. So, Lord, we entrust one another to Christ today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.